You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you could probably find one in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one, you could probably share with somebody next to you. In the summer of 1982, I was on a commercial fishing boat about halfway between Midway Island and Japan. And uh, we were trolling for albacore tuna and we encountered this huge storm that just kept blowing and blowing. And it lasted for about a week. After several days of this, it's really impossible to fish. You, you get washed overboard. And so you can't really do anything. Uh, it's hard to even sleep because if you fall asleep in your bunk, you get thrown on the floor. And so you just kind of wedge yourself into corners and get real tired. And, you know, you have to eat food that you can cook when the boat is tipping back and forth. And so I was a new believer at the time and, you know, I was reading my Bible and I had read about Jesus calming the sea and I knew God was all powerful and I was reading things about the power of faith and, and prayer and, and so I thought, I, I've got this idea. And so I went up into the bow of the boat and while I was plunging up and down into the sea and I had a little prayer time with God and asked him to calm the sea. And uh, I, I had faith, I knew God could do it, and I believed that God could do it, and uh, you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> we just kept going up and down for about three more days. And I think everyone has experienced times like this in their life. We kind of have some sort of trial come into our life, something that happens to us, and we know what the scriptures say, say, and we've read the stories, and we are sure that God is powerful enough. We know that he rewards faith. We know that Jesus calmed the sea, or whatever it is. And so we place our faith in God. We, we believe he's going to do something, and nothing happens. And you know, we're left wondering, did I not have enough faith? Or does God not want me to have faith in a situation like this? Or, you know, what's broken? Because uh, faith doesn't seem to be working in my life like I see it work in the lives of people in the Bible. And you can be tempted to think that faith is kind of a useless thing. That it's just nothing more than a mental crutch period, and doesn't really do anything at all, because after all, you've, quote, tried it, and it hasn't worked. To make things more confusing, as you go through the Bible, you keep reading verses about faith, and the need to have faith, and the need to believe, and the need to trust, and the need to follow, and how God has done all these incredible things for people who are now dead, and you think, well, I wish he would, you know, divide the sea for me, but he doesn't. We're studying Luke's account of Jesus' Galilean ministry, or his ministry near and around the Sea of Galilee. In chapter 6, Luke gives us a shortened account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. After that, Jesus healed the leper, and Matthew tells us, and then Jesus heads for Capernaum. And so this is where we have left off, and so we are now going to read about one of the incidents that happened after the Sermon on the Mount. So look at Luke Chapter 7, verse 1, and follow along as I read. The text says, When he had completed all his discourse and the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. 
And when he heard about Jesus, he sent home, sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with him. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes, and another come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, what we want to do is we want to look at the measure of your faith, look at four aspects of faith that you need to understand and apply to your life so that you can be blessed like this centurion. The first is, is when you experience trials. Look at Luke 7, 1. It says, we had completed his discourse in the hearing of the people. He went to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum um, is in the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Tradition says that the Sermon on the Mount was in the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's going to Capernaum, this town, this kind of fishing town near uh, the shore of the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. Now we know that Jesus is being followed by this huge mob of people. If you look in Luke chapter 6 verse 17, it says, There was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And so there was this gigantic crowd. So Jesus has preached a sermon, now he's going to Capernaum, and he gets there, and sure enough, this giant crowd has caused a human traffic jam in the little town of Capernaum. People are crowding around, and Jesus is teaching, and he's most likely healing, and people want to hear him, they want to be healed, they want their daughters, their sons, their friends to be healed, and so there's this great pressing mob all around Jesus. Now, look at verse 2. A centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. The centurion was a commander of 100 Roman soldiers. The centurion here is a Gentile centurion, and he has a slave. But the text says he was highly regarded by him, which was unusual, because slaves are usually given very little regard. But this centurion had great regard uh, for this slave. And what is interesting is it says the slave was sick and about to die. We don't know particular uh, details about the disease, but Matthew tells us he was paralyzed and in great pain. So he's a highly regarded slave. He's paralyzed and he's just in agonizing pain. And if you have ever had to stand by while a loved one suffers, you know this is the one of the worst things you can go through, isn't it? Because you see that person suffering, they're in agony, they're in pain, and you can't do anything about it. I mean, you pray for them, you try and comfort them, you try and encourage them, you do what you can, but they're just in pain, and you are powerless to change the situation. 
And this is the trial that the centurion is facing. And you know what? All of us have trials to one degree or another all through our life. They never stop. Life is nothing more than a string of trials. I mean, whenever things start going good, even for a whole day, I start thinking to myself, "Uh uh-oh. I wonder what God's going to bring next. You know, he gives us a little rest in between. Sometimes I, uh, you know, I come to the office and I see it receive, you know, three or four thank you cards and encouragements and emails. And I just call my wife and something bad is going to happen. You know, I just kind of feel like God's kind of building me up so he can swat me back down. Webster defines trial as a test of a person's forbearance and endurance. And, and all of us have trials and they come in different degrees and different sizes, one after another, all through our life until we die. And they come with God's full knowledge and God's full per- permission because they come as instruments of God to do us good and give him glory. Every single one of them. And what we need to learn from this is that when we encounter trials and tribulations, we need to know they come from God and we need to turn to God. Don't turn to the tabloids, to a friend, to your psychologist, you know, call up Dr. Laura. Turn to God. We need to learn to turn to God first and foremost. So often we treat God as the last ditch effort you know after we've tried everything we can after we've maxed out our visa after we've used all of our wisdom and all of our ingenuity and all of our strength and all of our power then when we're reduced to mental rubble we come to god and say help when we should have at the very beginning gone to god and said help and then all along the way we should have been casting our burdens upon him so that he could help us And this is so easy to understand, but it's so difficult to apply. And many Christians just, I mean, they just live like practical atheists. You know, you take an atheist and throw them off a cliff, they cry to God on the way down. And that's how many Christians are. It's only when it's just absolutely desperate that they go to God. And he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, who has all resources and who wants to shower us with all good things. And we won't even ask him for help. As a Christian, you need to run to God first in the middle and at last. And you know what this is called? It's called living by faith. Living by faith. The centurion found himself in the midst of a trial. His slave, whom he highly regarded, was sick, paralyzed, and suffering in great agony. And he couldn't do anything about it himself. But you know what? He knew God. He knew God. And specifically, he knew about Jesus. The second point, look at verse 3. When he heard about Jesus, just stop there. He's never even met Jesus before. He's just heard about him. And you know what? Anybody here who's a believer has never met Jesus. You've just heard about him. That's where the centurion was. He had never seen Jesus, but he believed in him. He was trusting in Jesus. 
Jesus was famous in that area. He had healed many people. His teachings were being marveled at. Great crowds of people were going around the Sea of Galilee, around Capernaum. And surely this man, who was over 100 Roman soldiers, had heard of him. He probably heard about it from the Jews. He had heard about it from the Gentiles. He heard about it from his soldiers. He probably talked to people who were healed and people who had heard Jesus say things. And you know what? He believed in Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus. And even though he had never met him, the evidence was overwhelming. Jesus was a man of God. He was a prophet of God. He was wielding the power of God. And so he must have been the savior of God. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you go through the gospels, People who are already believers before they meet Jesus receive him instantly. You ever notice that? No resistance, no doubt. Do you know why that is? Because their heart is already soft. They're already children of God. They're already prepared to receive the Messiah. And so when Jesus comes along, it's like, oh, that's the guy. No resistance. They just receive him. And that is what this man did. And there is only one way you can receive Jesus, and that's through faith the man had never seen jesus but he believed in him just like all of us have never seen jesus but we believe in him at least i hope you have there are some though who come to church who have not really placed their faith in jesus oh they have an intellectual belief they confess that Jesus existed. They confess that he is the Savior, that he is the Lord, that he died on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day, that he died for sins, that they are sinners. But they've never really placed saving faith in Jesus. They're willing to call themselves Christians in order to get out of God what they want, want to get out of God. You know, I'll be a Christian because God will help me escape from hell. I'll be a Christian because God will protect me. I'll be a Christian because God will give me moral friends. I'll be a Christian because of what peace I will have because God will give me that peace. That is being a mercenary unbeliever. That is being a mercenary unbeliever. To call yourself a Christian for pay. But when God doesn't give people like that what they want in a crisis situation, you know what they often do? They turn their backs on God. Because, you know, I went to church for four years or six years or 20 years and God didn't give me what I want when I wanted it. And so I'm through with this Christianity thing when in reality they never have known what it means to be a Christian. Jude describes them in Jude 11 through 13, woe to them for they have gone the way of Cain. Do you remember Cain? Did he know God? Well, he knew about God. He talked with him, but he turned his back. He says they have gone the way of Cain and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Did Balaam know God? Well, he talked with them. He saw the angel with the flaming sword. His donkey rebuked him and he prophesied by the Holy Spirit. And yet he still, for pay, counseled Israel's enemies against God and the people of God. 
And they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Did Korah know about God? Yeah, they saw the pillar. They saw the cloud. They ate man every day. Their clothes never wear out. And then they got greedy and lusted for the power that Moses wielded because of God. And they are all destroyed in the desert. Oh, these are examples of people who know about God through and through, who are among the people of God, but they're not saved. Verse 12 says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear, here's the key phrase, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Pretenders. If you were to ask him, are you a person of faith? Oh, yes. Do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Believe he died on the cross for sins? Oh, yes. Do you believe you're a sinner? Yes. Do you have faith in Jesus? Yes. Because I care for myself and he gives me what I want. Keep in mind that faith has to have an object. You know, people talk about faith as it's just some isolated thing. Faith always has to have an object. Faith in a rock doesn't save you. It doesn't have any power to have faith in Buddha. Confucius is dead. So if you have lots of faith in Confucius, no power. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Not Buddha and Jesus, not Confucius and Jesus, not Joseph Smith and Jesus. Jesus alone. James talks about this in James chapter 2 where he says over and over, listen, if your faith doesn't have any works, it's dead being by itself. In other words, faith is not just a mental thing. And what James is talking about is not that works save you, but that saving faith works. The kind of faith that saves you, the only kind of faith that saves you is the kind of faith that works. It trusts God it is volitional it engages the will not just the mind though the centurion had never met Jesus he had become totally convinced that Jesus was the Messiah sent by God and that he wielded the power of God he had a living faith and you say well Jack how do you know this well that's our third point look at the middle of verse 3 he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave why would he send for Jesus if he didn't believe Jesus could heal his slave There would be no reason for it. The only reason he sent the Jewish elders is he knew Jesus could do it. He believed. And he wasn't just saying, well, he could do it, but I'm not going to attempt to ask him to heal my slave. No, he believed it and he exercised faith. That's what God likes. And what is amazing here is you can see quite a bit about the centurion just from these few verses. The centurion was a Gentile. Jesus was a Jew. The centurion must have known because he had grown up in this Jewish culture and he knew the Jews, goes on to say he built them their synagogue, that he knew about Jewish 
customs and traditions and the scriptures. And he knew that to send a Gentile into the midst of a bunch of Jews would probably be an unwise thing. And so what he did is he sent some Jewish elders. Now, obviously, because he had built their synagogue for him, they were endeared to him. And what is amazing is these Jewish elders complied and they went to Jesus and crammed their way through the crowd to get to Jesus for the sake of this unclean Gentile. It's amazing. It is amazing. And it tells you just how much these Jews respected this centurion, this Gentile centurion. But he had a working faith, and that is the point you don't want to miss. Look at verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, this is the Jewish elders sent by this man, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our congregation. And the, the Greek is emphatic there. It was he himself who built us our synagogue. He He did it himself, his own resources, this Gentile built these Jews a place that he couldn't go into. Now that is just almost, it's just unheard of. And so the Jews, they love this man. And they were willing to crunch through the crowd in order to make the quest. You also see the wisdom of this man, this centurion, because he, he, he realizes, you know, Gentiles don't have much clout with Jews, but the most respected people in the Jewish society are the Jewish elders. So I'm going to go ask the Jewish elders to go make this request for me on behalf of my slave. And he sent them to Jesus. Look at verse 6 and 7. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Now you're thinking, well, what's the deal? I mean, he just asked him to come and now he's asking him not to come. Well, what does this tell you? Well, think about this. The man is wise. He's obviously wise. He obviously knows the scriptures. He knows Jewish customs. And he thinks to himself, you know, I know this Jesus guy could heal my slave. And so I'm going to ask these Jewish elders who will have more clout than anybody I know of to go ask Jesus to come here. Jesus then leaves the city. Now, there are thousands, most likely, crowding around him, trying to hear him teach, trying to get people healed. I mean, he's, this is a huge request. So Jesus starts leaving the town and the centurion must have lived close to Capernaum and they're all journeying and the, the centurion's probably looking out his window and he sees Jesus at a distance with this mob of people following. And he begins thinking to himself, you know, what I'm asking here is not right because I'm a Gentile and Jesus is a man of God He's wielding the power of God. He's a great prophet, maybe the Messiah. And I'm asking him to defile himself in my house. And he starts thinking to himself, you know, I shouldn't be asking Jesus to make himself unclean in front of all these people for the sake of my servant. Which tells us this about the man. He is a selfless man. 
He's thinking about Jesus, Jesus's reputation, Jesus's convenience, and the health of his slave. He's not thinking about himself. So in the middle of verse 6, the centurion sends friends and says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. He says, I didn't feel worthy even to come to you, which not only tells us he's not only a selfless man, he is a humble man. He doesn't even see himself as worthy. He is a man of faith. He is wise. He understands some of the scriptures. He's selfless and he's humble. But not only that, you can tell that this man understands the scriptures well enough to know God and who God is. He understands that God is sovereign. That God is everywhere present. That nothing is impossible with God. And so he begins to reason to himself, well, if Jesus is here, you know, the Messiah, and he's wielding the power of God, he doesn't even need to come to my house because God is everywhere present. And if he can heal him while he's present, he can surely heal him while he he is not present. And so look at the end of verse 7. He says, through these messengers, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say it. Now, there's no presumption here. The centurion is not saying, I know for sure you're going to heal my servant. No, he's saying, I know if you say the word, he will be healed. I believe you can do it. He's not saying you will do it. He's saying, if you do do it, I believe it. And then you might be thinking to yourself, well, Jack, how do you know what the guy's thinking? Because he tells us in verse 8. Look there. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, this is such a great statement because right after he says, don't come, just say the word, and he will be healed. And then he gives this little explanation which tells us, tells Jesus and us what he knew about God. Do you see the significance of the illustration? It's this. The illustration shows that the centurion realizes that he is a man under authority. And he lives his whole life taking orders from other people. And he does what his superiors tell him. Not only that, he is a man of authority. And he has people under him. And all of his soldiers do what he says. Not only that, he has servants. And those servants and slaves do what he says. But you know what? His superiors are not always in his presence, present when, present when he's doing their bidding. Neither are his soldiers always being overseen by him and watched every second. He sends them out and they do what he tells them. And his servants are the same way. He tells them what to do and they do it. He doesn't have to watch them every second. He doesn't have to be in their presence every time they obey his command. And his point is this. Listen, God is everywhere present. His power and authority are infinite, just say the word. And my servant will be healed. If you're the man I believe you are, you can just say it, and it will happen. And that is why, look at verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. The guy just nailed it. God can do it. And Jesus doesn't even need to be present. The word marvel means to be amazed or to admire or to be impressed with the sense of wonder. Jesus wondered. And then notice what he does, verse 9, towards the end. 
The text says, he turned and said to the crowd, there's this huge multitude who's following him to the centurion's house, and they've now stopped because more messengers have come and said, hey, hey, just wait, just say the word. Let me explain why. He explains why. He marvels. Then he turns to the crowd, this huge throng of people. I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. This guy was just the champion of faith. He is a model for all of us. The guy just believed. I mean, he believed to the utmost. Now, let's just put all of this together so we can see what it means to learn by live by faith. First, the centurion was already a believer. Secondly, the centurion had an active, trusting faith, not merely an intellectual faith, but a faith that sent Third, the centurion had godly wisdom and wanted to do the wisest thing possible, which tells us he was familiar with Judaism, the scriptures, and the Jewish customs. Fourth, the centurion was a selfless man. He was thinking of others, not himself. He was thinking about Jesus, his servant. And we are told that even though he was a Gentile, he built the synagogue for the Jews, which tells us he was very generous. Five, the centurion was a humble man. He saw himself as unworthy to go to Jesus or for Jesus to even come under his roof. And six, the centurion was not only a man of active faith, he was a man of great faith. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, let's just compare this to me up in the bow. I was a believer and I had an active faith, but it pretty much stops there. I didn't have very much wisdom. I was selfish. I was not generous. The only reason I wanted the storm to stop is for my own personal convenience. That's all. I wasn't humble. I thought God should do what I wanted him to do. I didn't have great faith. So no wonder God kept me thrashing around out there. I needed it. Let's just sink this through a bit. What if you were a believer and you had true faith? active faith, great faith. What if you had the word of Christ dwelling in you richly and all your motives were for the sake of others and for the glory of God? Now, does that mean God is always going to do what you expect him to do when you have faith? No, no. Does it mean that your faith will always be rewarded in the way you think it should be rewarded when you think it should be rewarded? Rewarded? No. Why is this? Well, God always rewards faith. That's a no-brainer. But God doesn't always reward our faith in the way we expect Him to or when we expect Him to. We don't know the end from the beginning. God does. God has planned it. We are not infinitely wise. God is Listen carefully. Faith isn't the guarantee you'll get what you want when you want it. Faith is the command of God which tells you to trust in God because He is going to get what He wants. That's what faith is. Faith realizes God knows what's best. God has planned it from the the end, from the beginning. 
and he's going to accomplish all of his good purpose and I am going to trust him. God speaking through Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that is a long way apart. I don't know how far the heavens go, but they go a lot longer than your brain. God knew before Satan rebelled that he was going to rebel and he didn't stop Satan. God knew before Satan tempted Eve and deceived Eve that she was going to fall into sin and that she would willingly willingly give to her husband and he would willingly rebel against God. He knew about it all before it happened. He had the power to stop it and he didn't. God knew before Joseph was born that Joseph would be hated by his brothers and sold as a slave and just all those things that happened to his life. He saw it all before it happened and he let it all happen because he knew it was best. And in the end, the whole nation was saved. God knew before he delivered the people of Egypt from Egypt that the whole generation would drop dead because of disobedience and unbelief. He knew all of that before he did. He still delivered them and they still all dropped dead. And he used their children to come into the promised land. He knew before Jesus was born that Jesus would be hated and crucified. But he had a plan in all of that. A very good plan. A plan to save us from our sins. And we could give example after example after example that show that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And faith anchors itself in that truth about God. Trials cause the anchor of faith to dig in to what the scriptures tell us about God. We need to trust God that he knows what's best, even if it means we have to suffer like Job or die a martyr. But it's not your place to tell God what he needs to do when you want him to do it in the way that you want him to do it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. You can't preach on faith if you don't look at Hebrews 11. It would be a sin. So let's go there. Hebrews chapter 11. The great chapter of faith in the Bible. Here the author of Hebrews begins by making this classic definition. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Notice the hope for and the not seen. Some people say, well, you know, we can do this ministry as soon as God provides everything. Hoped for, not seen. God wants us to live by faith. Look at verse 6. After he gives a few definitions of people of faith, he says in verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. Impossible. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You must believe God exists. You must believe he will reward you for your faith. Period. If you don't do that, you cannot please God in any way. Then he gives a whole bunch more examples of people of faith. Noah, Abraham, Sarah. Look at verse 13. 
All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth, notice they never received what was promised, though they were people of faith. They didn't get the goods in their hand. Then many more examples are given which describe people who were rewarded partially for their faith here on earth. Sometimes God does do what we hope he does when we hope he does it in the way we think he will. But not always. And look at these people, verse 36. uh, And others, here's a different category of people, experience Mockings, even though they were living by faith. Scourgings, though they were living by faith. Yes, also chains and imprisonment, though they were living by faith. They were stoned, though they were living by faith. They were sawn in two, though they were living by faith. They were tempted, though they were living by faith. They were put to death with a sword, though they were living by faith. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Did you see that? None of them in this last category received what was promised, though they were all men and women of faith. They were tortured and cut in pieces and persecuted and killed. Faith is not about you getting what you want. It's about God getting what he wants from you. And he wants you to trust him that you will be rewarded. It may not be in this life, But I'm telling you, you're never going to be sitting in heaven going, well, this is a bummer. I really got gypped. You need to get the Hollywood definition of faith out of your mind. The world tells us that faith in God is necessary so we can get what we want out of God. The Bible teaches us that faith in God is so God can get out of us what he wants out of us, which is complete trust and reliance regardless of what this life might bring to us. And if you do this, fourth point, your faith will be blessed. Look at verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. You know what? The centurion got just what he hoped for, just what he hoped for would happen. He got his slave healed. His faith was rewarded just like we always hope it is and the sea goes calm. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's always rewarded, if not in this life, in the life to come. In the second Star Wars movie, in The Empire Strikes Back, which, which is my favorite, Luke Skywalker is being trained by Yoda in the jungles of some planet in the Dagobah system. And he's been teach, you know, being taught how to use the Force. And uh, during this time, his spaceship sinks into the mud. And so Yoda tells Luke, yeah, just, you know, use the force and pluck it out of there. And Luke is convinced that he is too small and the spaceship is too big. But Yoda tells Luke, with you, it always can't be done. And then he says, size matters not. You remember that? Size matters not. He says, you judge me by my size? And then Luke kind of says, okay, I'll try. He says, no, either do or not do. There is no try. And so what was Yoda trying to teach Luke? 
He was trying to teach him, listen, either have complete trust and confidence in the force and do not waver in unbelief or don't even bother. And that is what God wants us to do with him. Either have faith or don't, but don't try God out. That is unbelief. To try God is to not believe God. That is not faith. That is doubt, reluctant doubt forced into practice. And so Luke tries and he fails. And so while he's pouting there, Yoda goes over, levitates the you know, craft out of the muck and sticks it on the ground. And when Luke sees it, do you remember what he says? He says, I don't believe it. <laughs> See, that was the real Luke. And Yoda says, that's why you fail. And you know what? That is exactly how it is with Christians. Every sin you commit is an act of unbelief. God says, this is good for you. You don't believe him. You do your own thing. God says, read your Bible. You don't believe him. That is going to bless you. You think it's a waste of time. God says it isn't, but you think it is, so you don't do it. God says, pray. It's a very high priority. But with you, it's not. You don't believe him. Every sin is an act of unbelief. And the reason we fail as Christians is not because God is not powerful. It's not because faith doesn't work. It's because we will not trust God with an active faith like this centurion. Obedience is the act of trusting God by faith. Have you ever looked in the scriptures? If you do a little study, you'll find this to be true. For instance, John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That word believe and that word obey are the same Greek root word. Why are they translated differently? Because faith obeys. That's why faith is not intellectual understanding. Faith is intellectual understanding put into practice. And don't confuse the two. We need to have faith like this centurion had faith. God speaking through Isaiah in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Think about that. God has declared the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Do you believe that? That is what faith needs to be anchored in. The person and character of God. He will do all of his good pleasure for his glory. And if you know him for your good. God wants you to believe with an active, trusting, great faith. Just say the word and my servant will be healed and just know it. He may not do it, but he can. And I'm going to trust him. You know, we have a building project going on and a lot of people are kind of Luke Skywalkers. With them, it always can't be done. Oh, it's too big. Oh, come on. God could give us the whole block from here all the way down to Disney. You think, oh, yeah. That's because you don't believe. I have a church in Idaho that 
I used to go to. They were building this, they built this building and they were in it and it was very fine, but the property wasn't that big and they were thinking of maybe moving, but they didn't have the money. And so the Catholic Church approached them and said, we want to buy your property. And they said, sorry, we, we don't want to sell it. And they said, no, we want to buy it. They said no, and they came back again and again, and finally they said, okay, if you, w- w- this is what we want. We want 20 acres, and we want to design our own building, and you pay for the whole thing. And they said, okay. <laughs> now, you see, you go, well, that happened to them. That's happened to a lot more than them. But I'll tell you this. It doesn't happen to people who don't believe. God does not reward doubt. God can do anything he wants. The building may not even happen. The whole thing may get burnt down and we might all die in an earthquake. That's not the point. The point is, is all of us as Christians need to constantly live by faith, trusting that God is going to accomplish all of his good purpose, that he needs to be relied upon all through any trial that we might have, any obstacle. We trust in him. We believe he can do it. And then we act upon it. Whatever he wants us to do, we act upon it and trust him for the results. So, when you experience trials, when you know Jesus, when you live by faith, you're going to be blessed. Believe it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, for the way you take care of us, for the way you watch over us. Father, I am so grateful for this story of this centurion. What a great story it is. Father, I pray that each person here would learn to have just a heart that is just set like flint to believe you, that we would not deviate or doubt, that, Father, we would have active faith, faith that believes and obeys, faith that trusts you no matter what happens, knowing that you are sovereign over all things that come into our life, that you are the God of what is impossible, And Father, you are going to bring all of your good pleasure to pass. And if we know you, we're a part of that. So help us to praise you and thank you and trust you in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.